0: Yeah, back at it. Is the Lord good this morning? Is uh, this conference crushing or what? I mean, every department seems to have unique grace on it. Uh, So I'm just thankful to be a part. Oop, my timer's going. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your kindness. We thank you for the Lord Jesus. We thank you for the God who is the God who's coming back for us. Um, And we pray that you will bless this morning as uh, we've rallied up. We've rallied up uh, to make much of the God who is not only triune, but the God who created all, the God who redeems, and the one who's now therefore Lord of all. Uh, We thank you, Lord Jesus, uh, for making known to us the fullness of the Godhead. And so we bless you. Be with us now as we contemplate your word this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. J.I. Packer in his Christian classic, Knowing God, starts off by acknowledging the proper study of mankind. This is what he had heard. He said, I hear that the the proper study of mankind is the study of man. He says, I won't argue with that, uh, but it's equally true that Uh, The proper study of God's elect or God's people or the Christian that's in Christ is the study of God. What he's getting to is what we've been saying in this conference, that the human identity is uh, tied to the divine identity. Who and what you are and who and what you are becoming is tied to and must be evaluated and defined by who he already has revealed himself to be. It's like two people, one person, an evangelist was singing, I've been redeemed, I've been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, by the blood of the Lamb. as he was walking, somebody else joined in. I've been redeemed, I've been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. They started singing that song. Eventually, the evangelist stops and says, man, uh, can I ask you, are you redeemed? Uh, The person said, yes, I am. Uh, He said, for for how long uh, has it been? He said, oh, about 2,000 years. Looked kind of puzzled and said, what? He said, yeah, but uh, sadly, um, I only came to understand this uh, about a year ago. About a year ago. What the person was saying was that my place as redeemed, my place as saved today didn't just happen today, it's based on something that happened before me, that based on something that happened in the mind and the heart and eventually in the history of God. And so what we're doing today is we want to talk about the God who redeems or the God who saves because that'll determine whether or not you in fact are or can and will be saved. So let's look and use a famous passage in the Old Testament, I'm going to be in 2 Kings chapter 5. It's the story of Naaman who was a leper, Naaman who was a leper, 2 Kings chapter 5. And I think the text shows us at least four things here, the need for salvation, the source of salvation, the how of salvation, and then what should be the response to salvation. Who or why do we need a savior? Who can or will save? How shall we be saved? And how do we respond after being saved? Let's look at the text. I'll walk through it as we go. Let's start with the need of salvation. Why? Why do we need a savior? The text reads like this, Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria was a great man with his master, in high favor, because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was a mighty man of valor. We're introduced immediately to a great man, so to speak, Naaman the great man. Ah, he was a great man with great status. He was the captain of the army of a king of Syria. He was a great man who was greatly esteemed. He was a great man in the eyes of his master, the Bible says, that his master thought highly of him. No doubt people in the kingdom thought highly of this man. He had great success. The Bible says the Lord had given him victory. The word victory is actually the word salvation or deliverance, our theme for this morning. The Lord had used him to save his people uh, and God gave him victory even over Israel. In this case he was a great man with great capacity it says he was a mighty man of valor which just means that he was a military beast that he was no chump that he went out on the battlefield and he came back raising his hands in victory Naaman the great man yet the Bible quickly pivots from all this human greatness and says Naaman the great man also had a great need look at the text but he was a leper all of that but he was a leper. Leprosy in this day, no doubt, was probably not the leprosy we're used to uh, thinking about when we think leprosy, but it was a form of skin disease that could be painful, could be hideous. Uh, it, it was something that would cause alienation if it got too far. And in Israel, it would of course caused isolation as they would mark you unclean and put you out. So leprosy in the Bible became a great way to talk about sin Because leprosy would eventually remove you from the people and have you marked unclean by God. Therefore, it's a great lesson today to meet a leper who had great status, who had great success, who had great esteem, but had a great need. A need to be restored and saved from his own sickness. One commentator said Naaman was as great as the world could make him, and yet the basest slave in Syria would not change skins with him. The great need, the great need, and we have a similar great need which is why this is perfect. How easy it is for human greatness, human comfort to be offset by human weakness. Steph Curry, probably the greatest shooter that the NBA has ever seen, but He's often injured, injury prone. Whitney Houston, no doubt, sang the greatest Star Spangled Star Spangled no National Anthem ever. Butch that fail. Give me the L. He, she sang the greatest National Anthem in the Super Bowl ever, but she died addicted to substances. Anthony Bourdain, great chef, had seen the greatest places, had eaten the greatest foods, had sat with the greatest people, but he died. He hung himself, somebody said, because he was in a dark place. Even George Whitfield, Jonathan Edwards, we're talking about people, great, great evangelists that God had used greatly were on the wrong side of the slavery issue in their day. It doesn't take much for all your greatness to be offset, nullified, neutralized by a great, but... So this morning, why do we need saving? (laughs) Because no matter who we are, no matter what we've done, no matter what we have, there's a big butt in our face. (laughs) That works right, doesn't it? We need to be delivered from us. We need to be delivered from our flaws. Okay, so that's the need for salvation. Everyone in here needs it. The Bible says all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. We all fall short of what we could be what we should be. But now look at the source of salvation, the source of salvation. Who can save us and who would save us? Who can save us and who's willing to save us? Here we meet the God of salvation. We meet the only one who can save. Isaiah 59, 16 would say, God saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede Then his own arm brought him salvation. That's what we're going to look at. The God who saves from the temporal and the eternal. The God that saves us from our skin disease and our sin disease. Everyone has something we need to be saved from. And so let's look at this God who is the God of salvation. This God, first of all, is providence in arranging our salvation. Verse 2. Says, now the Syrians on one of their raids had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel, and she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, Would that my Lord were with the prophet who was in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. Providence. Providence is one of those words in theology to talk about the behind the scenesness of God, his ability to work behind the scenes and not be detected. It looks like coincidence. For some people, it looks like accident, but really, it's just God's providence. It's God working and maneuvering so that things turn out just the way he planned. In this story, now, that's the, the, the Bible's way of saying, now, it just so happens that on a raid one day when Naaman was out having victory he snatched up actually what the key to his cure he didn't know it at the time this is the commander who gets the key to his cure It says now that one who was snatched up actually happened to get brought into his house and work for his wife. So it just so happens that they get this girl from Israel. It just so happens that she works in his house for his wife and it just so happens that she knows and has the cure. The irony is that Naaman has a name and the Bible to have a name is because you're important. Other people are just now a certain man or a certain woman So in other words, the nameless, is that me? One, two, one, two. The nameless actually is the key to the cure, and the named Naaman is in need of it. Providence, you never know how God's going to do it in the Bible. God saves Joseph from his brothers and saves him to be the savior of his brothers, but how? He uses his brothers who instead of saving him thought that they were getting rid of him. You never know how God's going to do it. Ruth, who needed a husband, needed someone to redeem her, happens on a field by the name of a man named Boaz, and it so happens that God would save her through a field she providentially came across in your own story. How did you get saved? Some of you happened to be born to a pastor's home. Some of you happened to be born uh, in an unbelieving home but God happened to take you to a camp or take you to a conference or some of you happened to go to work and you sat next to somebody who happened to give you the gospel. All of that was an accident. That was God's providence. Romans 8:28 says he causes things to work together for good, all things to work together for good. To those who love him and are called according to his purpose. He's navigating these things so that you run smack dab into the God who saves. Well, this providence, not only do you see his providence, but this source of our salvation, this God also has a willingness and an ableness to accomplish salvation. Look at verse 3. She says, if you run into the prophet who is the representative of God, He would cure him of his leprosy. According to the New Testament, Luke chapter 4 27, Elisha didn't make go, it wasn't his business just healing lepers. He didn't have a reputation for healing lepers. How is it that this young girl could say, if you run into Elisha, the prophet, he is willing and he is able to cure you of your leprosy? He could, able, he would, willing. In my New Testament class, when we go to Mark, we look at Mark, which has two big sections. And the first section is the powerful Messiah, and the second section is the suffering servant. The God who is powerful enough to not suffer is willing enough to suffer. In Mark chapter 10, 45, he says, I didn't come to be served, but to serve and give my life a ransom. This is the God we're talking about. He's willing and he's able Don't you like it when people are both willing and able? Don't you like it, the people who can do it? Don't you like it when the people who do it, do it because they can do it, they want to do it? Well, that's God. Jesus can and Jesus cares. This is the God of salvation. Not only that, we see his goodness and his graciousness in extending this salvation, four to five. So Naaman gets excited at the thought of this. He gets lit. Fire emoji, fire emoji, happy emoji, happy emoji. He's like, ah, let's go. Verse 4, so Naaman went and told his Lord, thus and so spoke the girl from the land of Israel. The king of Syria said, go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. And the king of Syria said, go. So he goes, excited. He starts loading up his entourage. He starts loading up his chariots. And the Bible makes clear, that as he's doing it, he's expecting to be redeemed from his sickness. Now don't forget this is a Gentile. This is God giving someone victory over Israel. This is a Gentile. Let's not forget that. Let's not forget that this was the invading army of God's people. Let's not forget that this is Israel's oppressor. So how is it that God would save this one? because he's good and he's gracious Psalm 145 9 says the Lord is good to all and his mercy is over all that he has made all oh, we're talking about if you're gonna be saved you need to be saved by somebody who's strong enough but you also need to be saved by somebody who's good enough gracious enough Psalm 119 says you are good and you do good in Mark chapter 10 Jesus Goes to somebody and says, hold on, you're calling me good. No one is good but God. Jesus is making the point, oh, you're right. I'm good like God because I'm God. John 1:14 says that he became flesh, and when he became flesh, he just started spewing out grace, grace and truth. This God is good enough. This God is gracious enough. And so Jesus is good enough to save anybody strong enough to save from anything in in any circumstance, providential enough to save in any way necessary to bring us. Jesus is gracious enough to save us anyhow, regardless of what your resume is, regardless of what your past is, regardless of what you've done. This is the God who saves. Oh, but the text is not through. The text is showing you through the narrative that God is behind the scenes working. He's also transcendent enough. He's transcendent. He's big enough and he's beyond enough. Look what six to seven says. And when the king read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, he says, am I God? This is beyond me. And he's right. What Naaman needs is beyond the king who is believed to be at the top. The top commander and the top king can't do anything for this person. You need someone who's bigger than a king of the earth. You need someone who's bigger than a commander of the armies of the earth. God transcends the greatest doctors, the greatest lawyers, the greatest rescue workers, the greatest military officers all hit a road at some point. We need somebody who's bigger, somebody who's more beyond The chasm between us and the one who saves and the one who is and the one who's able is too great. Oh, but we don't just need a God who's big and beyond. We need a God who's near and accessible. So look at verse 8. He's imminent enough. He's near enough. He's present enough to save. Verse 8. But when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king had torn his clothes, he sent to the king saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Let them come down to me that they may know that there is a prophet in Israel. Listen to that language. A prophet in Israel meant that there is a God in Israel. In other words, the God may be found. Where can he be found? In the Old Testament, he could be found in Israel among the people. Where in the New Testament, he can be found in his church among us, indwelling us. We are his temple. In the incarnation is what? God with us. God can be found. He's with us. Socrates said, oh, show us a man, man or God, who could show us God? Jesus Christ. We heard about it last night and we hear about it this morning. The word became flesh and dwelt for a while among us he was in the building and now here Elisha says why are you tearing your clothes just because it's beyond you why are you tearing your clothes just because you can't do it there is a God in Israel send them to me I know him even if you don't oh can your friends find God because they found you will your kids bump into God because they bump into you Have you been saved and therefore that's good news because now others may be saved? Oh, we're talking about the God, the God of salvation, who's good enough, strong enough, providential enough, gracious enough, big enough, yet near enough and accessible enough to save. That is the source. This God of salvation. And if you notice, this God of salvation shows himself to be the God of the nations. Oh, you know, Israel didn't know this. That's why in Matthew 28, he says, now all authority is mine. Fling the doors open, go into all the earth and make disciples. Because the God of salvation is the God of the nations. He cares about you. He cares about me. He cares about them. Oh, look at this. This beautiful story of a God who saves. Well, what about the how of salvation? How would one be saved if he's willing to save? How must we be saved? Well, you must come to him humbly. You must come to him repentantly. You must come to him submissively or obediently. First of all, come humbly. Verse 9. Naaman, he's the opposite. He comes in great fashion, a great man expecting to meet greatness with greatness. Remember, verse 5 says he took five talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold, and 10 changes of clothing. So he expected to get a great welcome. Look at verse 9. So Naaman came with his horses and chariots and stood at the door of Elisha's house. Verse 10. Elisha sent a messenger to him saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored, and you shall be clean. Naaman already is upset. Look what the text says, verse 11. But Naaman was angry and went away saying, Behold, I thought. Stop right there. We come humbly. Naaman didn't, Naaman came with the entourage. Naaman came with the chariots. Naaman came with the chariots full of shekels of gold, silver, and changes of clothes. Naaman gets to the door. He probably was looking at the inventory sheet. Okay, gold, check. Okay, silver, check. How about the Adidas jumpsuit, check. Let's contemporize it. Any J's there? Yes. All the numbers. Okay, good, because we're going to get our cure. Before he can get the chariots unloaded, a servant of Elisha comes out and gives him a not so impressive word. He says, go wash it the Jordan seven times and be clean. I'm out. <laughs> Elisha's like, did somebody hear something? <laughs> Naaman is like, did you all hear something? The Jordan seven times. Be clean. Elisha says, what? Is that any way to treat a man like me? I thought, verse 11, that he would surely come out to me, stand, call upon the name of the Lord his God, wave his hand over the place, and cure the leper. I was looking for some Benny Hinn stuff. I thought he was going to go woof. There it is. (laughs) I thought he was going to come out, shake my hand and say, pleasure to meet you. Heard about your raid. I thought he was going to do some alakazam, abracadabra, pyrotechnics. But no, that's not what he got. Well, you see, he thought his cure would come at a great cost. So he brought a lot of money. He thought the cure would come to a great man so him and his entourage show up he thought that the cure would come with great pomp and circumstance but it came with a simple word wash in the Jordan seven times and be clean he's outraged he's outraged look at verse 12 he thought it would come through great waters or great means (laughs) he had a great idea are not a banner and far par? The rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel. Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned away and went in a rage. He had a better idea. I know a better idea to cure me. If it's about dipping in some water, at least give me some good water. Evian? Fiji. I guess Fiji's the good water. Evian is not. Scratch that illustration. Jump into the Fiji. I want to be clean. Okay, if you're going to send me the water, Abana, Farpar, they got the water clear, white sands. Naaman got everything wrong because he got the how of salvation wrong. He didn't realize first you come humbly. You don't come with a distorted picture of greatness. You don't come thinking you deserve it. You don't come thinking you can buy it you don't come thinking you should look good when it's happening you come humbly secondly you come repentantly repentance just means to go in the opposite direction naaman had to turn and think differently about himself he had to think differently about his need he had to think differently about god's plan and here we see the greatness of the word he got, which he was unable to see because he had a bad definition of greatness. Verse 13, but his servants came near and said to him, my father, it is a great word. Look at those words, how apropos. It is a great word the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? Has he actually said to you, wash and be clean? The servant, once again, a nameless Sees more than Naaman. He comes and says, This is a great word. How simple. Just wash and be clean. Will you not do it? He just said, Wash and be clean. Let's go. Will you not? You get greatness wrong. You'll get yourself wrong. And then you'll get Jesus wrong. Isaiah 53. Two to three, he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their face, he was despised and we esteemed him not. If you get greatness wrong. You'll get Jesus wrong. You'll get the gospel wrong. Remember Paul in 1 Corinthians 1.18. The message of the cross is cuckoo, foolishness to those who are perishing. But the power of God to we who are being saved. You'll even get preaching and preachers wrong. 1 Corinthians 2.1-5. When I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling in my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom but in demonstration of spirit and of the power so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men but on the power of God if you get greatness wrong you'll get preaching and preachers wrong you say he's nothing but if that gospel is coming forward oh the bible says oh that's something oh you'll get the kingdom of God wrong Paul had to turn to Christians and say, consider your calling. Not many of you wise, according to worldly standards. Not many powerful. Not many of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. You'll get us wrong. Which is why people don't want to be Christians today. They think it's too much baggage. They think we have too much much of a bad reputation. And the Bible says, yeah, but don't forget, he did choose us from an unseemly flock and an unseemly stock. But God chose us because God's understanding of good news, God's understanding of a great word is not the same as our understanding of a great word. You'll get these things wrong. So in the story of Naaman, greatness is flipped on his head. And the greatness of the word is not work and be clean, but wash and be clean. It's not wave a wand and be clean. It's just something simple like wash and be clean. And it's not go to great waters, but it's go to any waters that you're sent to by the great God. This is the how of salvation. Come humbly, come repentantly, change your mind of what you understand the great word to be. And then come obediently. Look at 14. So he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan according to the word of the man of God. And his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child. And he was clean. Come obediently, repentantly, in faith. Naaman finally says, okay, I'll do it. And when he obeys the word, his skin is restored. Oh, the Bible makes clear that the gospel, and I like the way one preacher said it, the gospel is not just an invitation. You can ignore an invitation and no harm, no foul. The gospel is a summons. You can't ignore a summons. There's consequences. The gospel... We must be obedient to the gospel, to the great word that we must confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, and we will be saved. The how of salvation is the trust in the one who went to the cross, as silly as that sounds. The one who shed his blood for us, as hideous as that looks. The Bible says that's the gospel. It's a great word. Will you not do it? Come humbly come repentantly come obediently that's how we experience salvation you know the Bible says that this is also how Jesus Christ accomplished salvation humbly he left heaven came to earth to show us the way (laughs) Philippians 2 says he became of no reputation he's God but said not something I'm running around here trying to get you all to uh, to to treat me like I'm God not something to be grasped not something to be exploited is a better way it's not something for me to come down here and take advantage of humbly repentantly he never had to repent for sin but jesus had to change something what the bible says he was with god and the word became flesh obediently says that he became obedient to death even death on the cross the lord jesus humbly The Lord Jesus changed and added something that had never been. He added humanity to his deity. And the Lord Jesus obediently went to the cross according to the preordained plan of God. He accomplished salvation. You and I experience salvation by humbly repenting and in faith obeying the good news. Oh, well, his skin is healed. So a physical issue... But then we see that God actually restored and saved him by dealing with his spiritual issue. He had a physical issue. Now God actually deals with the spiritual issue. Oh, look what the text says. The response to salvation. The response is, he starts recognizing the absolute exclusivity and supremacy of the God who saves. Verse 15. Then he returned to the man of God, he and all his company, and he came and stood before him, and he said, Behold, I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. In other words, more than just his skin was dealt with. His sin, his understanding of a spiritual reality changed when his physical reality got changed. D.A. Carson, the New Testament scholar, makes a great point about salvation. He says... The entire created order is under God's curse because of human sin. Sin is not first and foremost horizontal, social, though of course it is all of that. It is vertical. The defiance of almighty God. The sin which most consistently is said to bring down God's wrath on the heads of his people or on entire nations is idolatry. The de-godding of God. It is the overcoming of This most fundamental sin that the cross and resurrection of Jesus achieve. The most urgent need of human beings is to be reconciled to God. That is what took place here. He had a need, my leprosy. He got more than his leprosy address. He got his alienation from God and now he's reconciled and we see it because he recognizes that there's only one God who saves it's the God in Israel so he goes to the man of God and say now I know there is no God in all the earth but in Israel isn't that what the purpose of salvation is not so we can just say I'm saved but so we can worship the God who saves Two, a response to salvation live a life of gratitude for his saving work Look, he says, so now accept the present from your servant. But he said, Elisha, as the Lord lives before whom I stand, I will receive none. And he urged him to take it, but he refused. Look at Naaman. Naaman is just grateful. Naaman is like, look, I came all this way. I got all the Jordans. I got the Adidas jumpsuit. I got a whole bunch of other things. I got shekels. I I got gold. I got silver. Please, I'm just grateful for you pointing me to the way of salvation. Thank you. This is a right response to salvation. We respond not for salvation. But from salvation. We're grateful that he saved. And therefore, what we do is propelled by our gratitude. Live a life of gratitude for his saving work. That propels missionaries. That that makes us godly husbands. That makes us godly wives. That makes us godly bosses. Because we're grateful that God looked beyond our fault, as the church says, and saw our need He's acknowledging God as exclusive, and now he's grateful to him. But here's another. Continuing devoted worship and faithful witness. We'll come back to the fact that Elisha said, no, I'm not going to take it. Verse 17. Then Naban said, if not, please let there be given to your servant two mule loads of earth. For from now on, your servant will not offer burnt offerings or sacrifice to any god but the Lord. In this matter, may the Lord pardon your servant. When my master goes into the house of Rimmon to worship there, leaning on my arm, and I bow myself in the house of Rimmon, when I bow myself in the house of Rimmon, the Lord pardon your servant in this matter. He said to him, Go in peace. Continue in devoted worship and faithful witness. Two things see here. He says, give me some dirt. I want the dirt to be the little mound that I create in in the foreign land that's going to remind me that I'm in connection with the people of God in Israel. And he says, I'm going to worship only him. I'm going to live my life in devoted worship to this God, Yahweh, who saved me. And then he says this, but I'm also nervous that people who see me when I go into my master's temple to worship his God, when they see me kneeling because he uses me as an armrest, they'll think that I'm worshiping this God. He says, may God pardon me because I care not only about my worship, but I care about my witness. I care what it looks like when people see me I want them to know I believe in the only God but they're gonna see me over here where it looks like I may believe in that God he says please just know I'm letting him lean on me I'm not joining him in worship. Oh I remember when God told me get out the club He said why? Because people think you're in here dancing to the same thing they're dancing to. They think that you're in here excited about the same thing they're excited about. It was just about my witness I went to somebody, I said the Lord is dealing with my heart. They said you're not saved, I said I am saved. They said well what are you doing here? Great question, I'm no longer coming here. Because it's worship, only him, but it's witness. Be worried about even what it looks like. When it looks like you're, watch who you watch. Watch what you watch, watch who you listen to. Pull up beside somebody in your car and you banging 21 Savage. Pull up beside your car and you bang at somebody who you know is godless. And you say, well, I'm a Christian. I'm just listening to the music. Yeah, but when they pull up, they're like, oh, you like that too? Yeah, we are on the same page. He says, no, when I go into that house, I don't want my, my, my witness to be confused. A response is devoted worship and faithful witness. Hmm. Here's the wrong response the servant of Elisha, Gehazi. Now, Elisha said, no, I won't take. I know you're grateful, but I won't take your money. I won't take your clothes. Look what the text says. The text says, after he tells him to go in peace, but when Naaman had gone from him a short distance Gehazi the servant of Elisha the man of God said see my master has spared this Naaman the Syrian in not accepting from his hand what he brought as the Lord lives that he got spiritual as the Lord lives I will run after him and get something from him 21 so Gehazi followed Naaman And when Naaman saw someone running after him, he got down from the chariot to meet him and said, Is all well? And he said, All is well. My master has sent me to say, There have just now come to me from the hill country of Ephraim two young men of the sons of the prophets. Please give them a talent of silver and two changes of clothing. I just want Jordan number 12, and I want the number threes, and the Adidas suit. We'll take that. Plus, I'll take one coin and this coin. Naaman said, be pleased to accept two talents. And he urged them and, tried, and, and tied up two talents of silver in two bags with two changes of clothing and laid them on, the two, uh, on two of his servants, and they carried them before Gehazi. And when he came to the hill, he took them from their hand, put them in the house, and sent them in a way, and they departed. He went in and stood before his master, and Elisha said to him, Where have you been, Gehazi? I, I'm out of time, but, but listen, just, just look at the wrong response. Some people think that godliness is a means of personal gain. They think that the ministry is a way for them to get paid. They think that responding to the goodness of God means that now I have to cash in on the goodness of God. Well, Elisha says, no, we want them to know that our God saves and our God saves freely, that our God freely gives and so freely we give. So Gehazi goes and he says, no, 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 no. I'm going to use this as a, a way to advance myself so he goes he comes up with a lie and he says come on my master said just give me a little something something now Elisha calls him in where have you been where have you been he said your servant went nowhere but he said to him did not my heart go when the man turned from his chariot to meet you was it time to accept money and garments olive orchards and vineyards sheep and oxen male servants and female servants He says, I was sitting in my rocking chair doing devotions and all of a sudden the Lord was like, "Uh," and I went with you. And I was sitting in the room, I was sitting outside with you while you were telling him your story. He says, is this the time for? Therefore, the leprosy of Naaman shall cling to you and your descendants forever. Here's the response. Avoid using ministry and salvation as a means of self-advancement rather than for others joy and progress in the faith Paul said I'd rather be with Christ but for your sake for your joy and progress I'll remain among you the purpose of God saving us is that we would be a means of others experiencing the same God not as a means of us advancing and enlarging ourselves so here we come to this close naming the great man but he was a leper great need the source of salvation is this god this god who's providential enough the god of salvation is the god of the nations this god who's willing enough who's able enough who's big enough Who's gracious enough? Who's strong enough? Who's transcendent enough? Who's near enough to save? He will save even his enemies. He will save us while we were sinners. Christ died for us. And as the song says, He has sent Jesus Christ, what seems like an illogical means to bring us salvation. And the the song says, and sinners plunge beneath the flood and lose all their guilty stains. I don't know about you. I don't know if you have a physical ailment today but I know we all have a spiritual need and so we have physical and spiritual needs and the same God who saves is faithful to deal with both I conclude with the words of John Piper so fitting when Christ came into the world he was on a mission to accomplish global saving or redemption he signaled his purposes by healing many people during his lifetime there were occasions when the crowd gathered and he healed all who were sick this was a preview of what was coming at the end of history when he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more neither shall there be mourning or crying or pain anymore Revelation 21 4. one day all disease will be banished from God's redeemed creation there will be a new earth we will have new bodies death will be swallowed up by everlasting life The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox. And all who love Christ will sing songs of things to the lamb who was slain to redeem us from sin and death and disease. Christian, this is a great word, a great word. Will we not do it? This is the gospel. If you've experienced this, the Bible says you've been redeemed. The psalmist would say, let the redeemed of the Lord say so. And if you're not a Christian in here, this is the God who's willing and able and stands. If you can't say, I am the redeemed of the Lord, you can at least humbly go to Jesus, cast yourself in him and turn from your current course and obediently submit to him because he's willing and able to save there is no other. Our God is Satan. Let's pray. Gracious God and Father, thank you for your saving. Thank you for your keeping. Move now by your spirit to draw people to the Lord Jesus and his saving power and grace. May we realize that no matter who we are, what we have, we have a need. You are the source to meet that need, and our response is exclusivity, giving you our all. Our response is worship. Our response is a faithful witness. Our response is to avoid using it for us, but using it for others' joy. We pray these things in Jesus' name.